It is a great joy to be with you this morning. Uh, my heart was really encouraged just being able to sing with you guys. It was amazing. And yeah, just know that Grace Fellowship Church, Don Mills, is praying for you guys. We pray for you regularly. And we're thankful for what God is doing in this part of the city. Uh, so please pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, you are the God who promises your Holy Spirit to accompany your word. So Father, allow your Spirit to open ears to hear this word, to convict hearts, and to show us your word. In Christ Jesus' name, Amen. So imagine with me that you're sitting with a friend. And this friend has a very different worldview than you. They have different values, different beliefs. And it has been your prayer for a long time to share the gospel with this friend. But the opportunity just hasn't come. So this friend then asks you about church. And you, you tell them where you go. Then they ask you about the service. And then you, you tell them, and you wonder, is this the opportunity I've been waiting for? Is this the opportunity that I've been waiting for to share the gospel with this friend? But as you think about whether this is the right time, doubts start flooding in your mind. Maybe, is this the right moment? Maybe I should wait for a clearer opportunity. Will telling them about Jesus change my relationship with them? Will they mock me? I've done this so many times and other people haven't believed. Why would they? So rather than sharing the gospel, you change the topic to COVID-19 or the Super Bowl or just uh, maybe gardening if that's your thing. Maybe not in the winter, but maybe in the summer. But, but, but you change the topic. Has this ever happened to you? certainly happened to me. <laughs> as individual Christians and as a church, one of the things that God calls you to is to evangelize, to make disciples of Jesus Christ. We fulfill the Great Commission by bringing the gospel of Christ to people in our lives and our communities. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the term of evangelism, a good definition is that it is teaching the gospel the message from God that leads to salvation with the aim to persuade. I'll say that one more time. Teaching the gospel, the message from God that leads to salvation with the aim to persuade. Although we often know we should evangelize, we do so far less than we ought to. This challenge is multiplied by the fact that we live in a city with people who often have very little scriptural background and believe very different things than we do. And often they hold an increasingly skeptical view towards our message and our lifestyle. We face the fear of rejection, feel daunted at the task, and lack perseverance based on prior experience. But what God calls you to is to be a courageous evangelist in this city. Be a courageous evangelist in this city. To encourage us to face the task at hand, 
I want to bring you today the example of the Apostle Paul in Acts 17, in verses, 7, verses 16 to 34. There he tells the people in Athens about the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the reasons why the author, Luke, recorded the story was to give Christians an example of how to share their faith. And Paul's example is one that it shows, it shows us what it looks like to be committed to courageous evangelism in our context, wherever God has placed you. We'll be looking at what should motivate you to evangelize, what your message should be, and the expectations you should have as you share the gospel of Christ with people. I will start by looking at our motivation. God's glory and the fate of souls. Our motivation is God's glory and the fate of souls. So in, in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul is on a missionary journey when he faces persecution. He flees nearly 195 kilometers south to the city of Athens. The city of Athens is just a pit stop. It's not part of his plan, but God's placed him there. And in Athens, Paul finds himself in one of the greatest cities in the ancient world. I'm Greek, and my grandma would definitely say that. <laughs> she would say, Athens is the greatest, and Greeks are the best, which isn't necessarily true. <laughs> um, it's not true. Everyone's made in God's image. But th this city is renowned for its culture, its history, and its architecture. But Paul, as he looks at this city, he sees the city with the eyes of a Christian. Rather than seeing its glitter and its pomp, he sees that the city is devoted with idols. There are so many altars, statues, and temples in Athens that one Roman writer from that period said it was easier to find a god than find a man in Athens. So Paul's going to the city, there's statues, temples, everywhere. As Paul sees these idols and the people worshipping them, in verse 16 it says that his spirit was provoked within him. His spirit is provoked within him. Paul is angered, irritated, troubled by the fact that these people are worshipping false gods. So what does he do? Does he complain? Does he pronounce a curse upon them? Does he try to burn the city down? No. He proactively goes into the synagogues and marketplaces and evangelizes. He shares Christ. Acts 17, 16 says, After his spirit was provoked within him, he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul was just persecuted for evangelizing. Why would he do it again? Is he crazy? Athens is just a pit stop. Nobody would fault Paul for taking a vacation, for taking some time off. But Paul is so deeply moved and affected by the idolatry in this city, he's compelled to evangelize. And notice how he doesn't passively wait for people to come to him, but he proactively goes where people are. He goes into their synagogues, into their city center, to preach the gospel. He meets them where they are. 
I think Paul's example challenges us. Because oftentimes we can passively wait to share the gospel with someone. But I think this shows us that we ought to be intentional. Whether it be inviting someone over for dinner or getting to know unbelievers. Um, we, we have to have unbelievers in our lives to be able to share the gospel with them. So it just shows an intention on Paul's part. But why does Paul evangelize? What precisely moved Paul to evangelize in this city? Why was his spirit provoked within him? Well, first, Paul has a passion for Christ's glory. He has been miraculously saved on the road of Damascus by Jesus Christ. He knows that Christ is the creator of each one of the people in Athens. And he knows that Christ is deserving of all worship, all glory, and all praise. So when Paul sees false gods worshipped instead of the living God, he's shocked, he's perturbed, he's angered. Christ is being robbed of the glory he's owed. Paul would have agreed with Abraham Kuyper when he says, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of exi existence that Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, Mine. Many of you may have experienced group projects. And if you're a diligent person, group projects can be very frustrating. Because there often seems to be one person in the group who doesn't do much but never neglects to take credit for the work that you did. Certainly this irks you and feels unjust. Well, when people worship idols instead of God, it's like we're not giving God credit. We're not worshiping Him as He deserves it. These idols are wrongly being adored, wrongly being worshipped, and wrongly being praised. And Paul's zeal for Christ's glory cannot let that happen. Toronto has some similarities to Athens. Christ is not adored in much of the city. Instead of Christ's name being glorified, it is often used as a curse word. People fill their lives with various idols. They find their life meaning and purpose in the work that they do, in their families, in secular ideas, in the adoration of athletes, entertainers, and politicians. The creator of the universe is relegated to being one among many gods. Does this move you? Is your heart moved that your Lord Jesus isn't worshipped? Is your heart moved that your Lord Jesus isn't worshipped in your city? Is your heart moved that your Lord Jesus isn't worshipped in your communities, in your families, in your workplaces? It ought to move you. And if it doesn't, pray that it will. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come. Holding a firm conviction that Christ's name be hallowed and worshipped and praised gives courage for our evangelism. Pray that a concern for God's glory would allow you to overcome fear of man in order to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Another reality that fueled Paul's desire to evangelize was a concern for people made in the image of God. As Paul sees a people who are devoted to idols, it, is, it, it can be ascertained that a concern for the eternal de- their internal destiny wells up within him. It is not necessarily explicit in this passage, but other passages from Scripture show Paul's deep compassion for people. He says in Romans 9, 2-3 about the Jews, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul's heart for them was so overflowing with love that he's basically saying, I'd rather go to hell than have you go to hell. Paul was moved to evangelize out of a pity for souls. This scene reminds me of Jesus in Matthew 9.36. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And as a result of this, he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. So pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. It is out of a compassion for souls who face a righteous God that we ought to share the gospel. Perhaps some of you may be uncomfortable with this message. You you might not be a Christian, or you may be a Christian, and, and you may think that Christians should be free to worship their God, but shouldn't seek to persuade anyone else to become a Christian. But I I want to tell you, if a Christian doesn't share you the gospel, that actually is unloving. If we believe that there is an eternal judgment that you will one day face, and we believe the words that we sung about Jesus, that, that he will come, then we need to share the gospel. We're, we're, we're loving you as we share the gospel to you. Whether that be your friend or your parent, if they're telling you about the gospel, they're, they're loving you. For Christians, these two convictions, a concern for God's glory and a concern for the fate of souls, can help you to evangelize. These two convictions can help lead to a life marked by courageous evangelism in this city. Pray that God would plant these two truths deep into your souls. But these convictions are not just formed as individuals. They're also formed as a church community. They are caught and taught. And and as a church, you model this in prayer meetings as you pray for unbelievers. You model this in your pastoral prayer. Um, So as you come to prayer meetings, you will regularly be met with other believers who are passionately praying for people to be saved. That encourages you to also share the gospel. And also remember that the kids in this church need to hear the gospel. Do you have a heart for them? Do you want them to be saved? Are you intentionally discipling them? Perhaps you should pray about that. Perhaps you should. And telling kids about the gospel can be a great platform, can be a great opportunity to get comfortable 
sharing the gospel in that context, then also sharing the gospel in other contexts as well. So, so far, we've seen that courageous evangelism in this text is motivated by God's glory and the compassion for the fate of souls. It is great to have a motivation to evangelize, but Lord willing, as you get opportunities to tell, about Je- tell people about Jesus, you'll be confronted with another question. What exactly do I say? And Paul helps us with a model of how to talk to unbelievers about, the, about Jesus in, in Acts um, yeah, 17.22-31. The model that he shows is that we ought to tell people the whole gospel. So, in, in verse 22, Paul is invited by the leaders of Athens to explain to them the teaching that he's been preaching in the synagogues and in the marketplace. And as he's given this opportunity, you'll notice he doesn't go straight to talking about Jesus. Instead, he carefully and intentionally fits the message of Jesus Christ within the broader story of God and his dealings with mankind. Before he gets to Jesus, he wants to provide a framework of the glorious story. Have you ever had the experience of of coming in late to watch a movie that others are watching? Your friend or family member might be in the couch and it's the last scene and they're bawling their eyes out as they watch it and you're just kind of unaffected. Because for them, they've seen the rest of the story. This scene makes very little sense to you because you don't know the rest of the story. But for the person on the couch who's been watching the movie the whole time, they've been immersed in the plot line, familiar with the characters, this scene is incredibly impactful. Similarly, the gospel message of Jesus Christ is more powerful and impactful when people know the rest of the story. Sometimes we can assume that people know more about Jesus in the Bible than they do. And I think we might have been able to assume that in Canada 20 or 30 years ago. But I don't think we can assume that anymore. Many people are simply not familiar with the Christian message at all. And when we go straight to Jesus, it can be like we've skipped to the end of the movie. God can still and does use that. Sometimes the conversation naturally lends itself to talking first about Jesus before speaking in an extensive manner about the rest of the story. And I would encourage you to take the opportunities you're given. But I believe that following Paul's example of being conscious of the audience you're speaking to and setting up the story before you get to Jesus will lead to more impactful conversations. But before Paul tells the whole story of the gospel, on a little side note, I'd just like to note out that he begins his conversation by subtly pointing out the instability of these people's devotion to idols and the restlessness of their souls. Even though they worshipped all these gods, they still felt the need to place an altar to an unknown god. They have a longing for more. Paul uses longings and restlessness for another god as a gateway to his main message. As Christians, we can, we can do something similar in our, me- in, in our messages. 
Um, I think lately in, in the evangelical churches, a lot of churches talk about hard idols and the unsatisfied longings that people have in their hearts and how that can point us to Jesus. I think in our culture that this can be a very helpful gateway to gospel messages. Just talking to people about the voids in their lives and the hard idols that they have. Now, in verses 24 to 31, Paul gets into his main message. I'm going to kind of run through this really quickly and, and summarize it. In verses 24 to 25, he presents God as the creator who has made the world and everything in it. In verses, um, and is completely self-sustaining. In verses 26 to 28, he establishes that this God is the one who has created all human beings through one man and is actively involved as the Lord of history. Then in verses 29, he explains who men and women are in relation to God. He says we are God's offspring, which means we are made in his image to have a special connection and relationship to God. Having established the uniqueness of God and the nature of men, in verse 29, Paul points out their sin, their idolatry. He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Notice that Paul does not go through every single story of the Bible before going to Jesus. But he does provide a basic framework. He tells us who God is. He's the creator of the universe who creates all things. Who we are, made in his image, to know him. He, he tells us um, the problem we have, sin. He's going through a basic structure of scripture. And after Paul discusses the foundational elements of the Christian faith, he then gets to the heart of the message. He calls people to repent of their sin and follow Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the one who has fixed the day on which every person will be held account. It says this, The times of ignorance God, ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Notice here that once again Paul is telling people the whole gospel. Although he's, he is conscious of his audience, and merciful and gracious in his presentation, he does not shy away from telling parts of the Christian gospel that could potentially offend. And in this context, as we'll see later on, do offend. He courageously tells them that, that God has fixed a day where Jesus will come in judgment. He tells them something that they cannot comprehend, and they eventually mock him for that Christ Jesus will be resurrected. He, he commands them to repent. We may deliver these truths in a different context, in manner than Paul, but these are still truths that we stand behind, that we proclaim. And we tell people unapologetically, kindly, mercifully, graciously, 
but, unapolog but unapologetically. You may notice that some essential elements of the gospel message are missing from Paul's speech. Paul does not have an explicit call to believe in Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ's death on the cross secured forgiveness for sins. This seems to be because Paul is cut off by members of the audience who mock him. Otherwise, throughout all of Acts, the gospel message that Jesus Christ died for sinners and offers forgiveness for sins is proclaimed. Friends, it is this whole gospel message that we stand behind and proclaim. And if you haven't embraced Jesus Christ, I would plead with you to do so. From this text, we see that Paul commands you to repent. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. And the question is for you today, will you obey this command? The Lord of the universe is offering you a command. How will you respond? Will you trust in Him or will you put it off another day? Friend, I beg you, I implore you to obey this command. To obey Christ. Turn from your sins and follow Jesus Christ. For Christians and the church as a whole, we have seen that you, you should strive to tell the whole story of the gospel. How do you do this? Well, you do this in your, in, like Peter does this in his sermons. As I was going through the sermons that he's preached, he's preached, he's preaching through Mark, but he's also preached through Haggai. He's preached through different books of the Bible because we know that all scripture is inspired and preaching from Haggai can give people a sense of the storyline of God and what, what God has done. So yeah, it's just as effective to bring someone to a message on Haggai as it is on a message on Mark. Telling people the whole gospel can also happen in a 15-minute conversation. You can bring out the major points of the gospel story. Start with who God is, who we are, and the fall. But, but I also want to caveat and say, opportunities don't always go as you plan them up, right? <laughs> We, we, we think we have this grand plan and we want to say this, this, and this. And all of a sudden we're asked by this random thing, about this random thing in Revelation. <laughs> and I would just say you should go with the flow to some extent. And, and God will use the opportunities that you're given. Um, this is a good pattern that God is giving through Paul. But there's other ways to share the gospel as well. As long as you're sharing the gospel and telling people what Jesus is, um, that's a very good thing. As Paul gets to the end of his message, in verses 32 to 34, we are told of several different responses as he gets to the gospel. These different responses teach you the expectation that you should have as you evangelize. And our, our expectation as we share the gospel is that we should ex expect opposition and accept, expect acceptance. Expect opposition and expect acceptance. Having the right expectation in life helps you to persevere. 
Have, have you ever had a job that, that you've gone to and you thought it was going to be one way, but then when you got to the job, it was completely different? Just like completely different in every single way. You thought you were going to work five-hour shifts, but that sh- the hours are like 13 hours a day. <laughs> well, it, it certainly um, makes the job all the more difficult <laughs> when you don't know the expectations you have when to come into it. But if you prepare yourself for that difficulty, if you know what you're getting into, you can know what to expect and persevere. Similarly, with evangelism, you want to have the right expectations. I think a lot of us, when we first became Christians, we, um, we wanted to share the gospel very frequently, and we did so all the time. Then, like, people reject us. Like, what do you do with that? We don't like that. So we kind of just put it on the back burner. Um, so in, in verses 32 to 34, you can see that Paul's gospel preachers met with several different responses. First, some instantly reject the message. The text reads, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they mocked. So Paul is preaching, he gets to the point of the resurrection, and they're just jeering and mocking. And I've had that happen to me before. You're you're talking to someone about the gospel in the street, someone just comes in and starts mocking you. Their worldview could not accept that God would ever raise a man from the dead. The, The reaction of being mocked for your faith may be the one that is stopping you from sharing your faith with others. We don't like being mocked, embarrassed, or thought less of. And we fear that if we share the gospel with our co-workers, with our family members, with a stranger on the street, we will be mocked. So we, we try to wait just for the right opportunity. But the truth is... Regardless of how delicate and winsome you are in your presentation of the gospel, or regardless of how smooth you are in your transition to talking about your faith, some people are going to reject, and some people are going to, to, to mock you. You certainly shouldn't give any tone, you, you cer- certainly shouldn't give any reason for offense in the tone and the way that we present the gospel. I, I, I've been with some guys that are very, sometimes can be very condescending in the way that they preach the gospel. And we, we can't do that as Christians. We must be gentle and loving. Yet people, let people reject your message, not because of your behavior. 1 Peter 3, 14-16 has been very helpful for me. It's, it reads this, even, But even if you should suffer, for righteousness' sake you should be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, you notice that? It's not if you are slandered, when you are slandered, that those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Did you get that? If you're rejected and mocked for sharing your faith, you'll be blessed. You'll be getting treasures in heaven 
for that for, for being mocked. So as you evangelize, expect opposition. Christ's message and the glorious truths of the gospel and the greatness of Jesus Christ is worth telling others about, even if it means that we're mocked. The second reaction we see here are those who give a delayed response to the message. They say, we will hear you again on this. Has that ever happened to you? Probably a lot, right? You shared some of the gospel and say, I'm going to hear you again on this. And we don't quite know if this reaction is a rejection or an earnest contemplation. In my view, they're disobeying God's command. They immediately should obey Christ's gospel. Yet, God is patient. And, I'm pro- and if, I've surveyed, if I survey this room, it'd probably be the case that God has saved many of you, not through one conversation, but through many. And perhaps over the course of years. And God has been patient with you, and he is also patient with other, others. So this is a call not to lose hope. Don't lose hope when people delay their response to the gospel message. Don't lose hope when that prodigal son or daughter that you've been praying for for years is still not a Christian. Don't lose hope when that neighbor you've been having conversations over the years for still hasn't accepted Jesus. Don't lose hope when your close friend has not given their life to Christ. Sometimes God works in an instant. Sometimes he works over over the years. I've heard an illustration that is helpful. If a pebble is in your shoe, often you will not address it, but it's still bothering you until someday you will have to. Like a pebble in the shoe that bothers you until it has to be addressed, one conversation you have with another person, maybe a pebble in their shoe. It might be something that they don't immediately respond to, but they're thinking about. And over the years, maybe in one year, maybe in five years, maybe in 15 years, God works. I've heard of people who went to Christian Sunday schools, and they didn't, and they rejected the gospel for years, but 20 or 30 years later, they think about that, and, and they're saved. Because the seed has been planted. So don't lose hope as you share the gospel. The third reaction that you can see is that some instantly believe the message. It says this, But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others who were with him. Despite that this is a city full of idols, Despite that Paul faced opposition, some believed. Dionysius, a person who is named after a Greek god, believed. God uses the gospel being shared through courageous evangelism to save lives. I find that one of my main issues in sharing my faith is that I lack faith to share the gospel. I've shared the gospel many, many times over my life and been rejected many, many times. And after a while of this, you can think, oh, is it even worth it? Should, should I even share my faith? Is this even going to see someone saved? 
But God does use evangelism to share, to save lives, and he can do so in an instant. And, and I know this, and my family history goes to show this. My dad was 23 years old, and he had not been exposed to a clear gospel growing up. He grew up in the Greek Orthodox Church. He was an altar boy in that church. He, he, never, he says he never heard the gospel growing up. And at 23, he, he, he was searching for the purpose of life. He couldn't find it um, as a member of his rugby team at university. He couldn't find it as a bartender. So he said he would pack up his stuff and go all across the world on a worldwide trip to find life's purpose. And by God's providence, it turned out that the first stop on that trip was a six-month course that he took at Laval University. It was a French course. And as he was in that course, he met a man in his class named Philip. Philip was a missionary. Um, he was, he's a missionary to the, to the country of Togo. And my, and my dad asked Philip, like, what, what are you all about? He was curious. My dad always loved to say he didn't know the difference between a mercenary and a missionary. But, but he was curious about this man's life. So the, the very next day, Philip takes my dad to an a w restaurant in, in Quebec City, and he just shares him the gospel. He talks about, he just goes through Romans. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And by grace you've been saved through faith. And within three minutes, my dad's life has changed forever. In an instant, he's saved. He's changed. He always says, as, as right after he's saved, he's, he, he's going through the, the city and, the, and, and just he sees in a whole new light. The things that appealed to him before don't appeal to him in the same way. God uses humble, courageous evangelism to save people's lives. To change hearts in an instant. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? He does. He's done it with you, and he will do it with others. So share the gospel. My dad's story also shows that God puts people in the right place to hear the gospel and to share the gospel. Our God is the God of providence. He's, he's the sovereign God. God put my dad in a class with a missionary. The people in your life are not there by accident. They're not there by coincidence. They're ordered there by God. Look in verse 26 to 27 of Acts 17. Having determined allotted people in the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. What that's saying is that God is ordering all history, where everybody is, to hear the gospel. That's the purpose of where everyone is in history. He has, he has ordered where people work, where they live, where they go to school to hear the gospel. And as we share the gospel, yeah, yeah, so, and as we share the gospel, we can trust that God has placed people in your life, maybe today, maybe that you'll see throughout the week, and those people are there to hear the gospel. 
And as we share the gospel, our confidence that people will believe upon hearing it does not lie in our own abilities. Isn't that freeing? It's not up to us. We, we can't by ourselves change someone's heart. That is the Lord's work. Just as in Acts 16, 14, the Lord opens Lydia, opened Lydia's, Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said. All you can do is be faithful and trust the results to God. Friends, God has given your church and each of you as individuals a great task. To share this glorious gospel, God has used it to change your lives and it can change the lives of people in this city, in your family, in your community. Let this year be marked by one of courageous evangelism. Discipline yourself on a regular basis to proactively share your faith. That looks different for different people, right? For, for some, that might be going on the streets to share the gospel. For others, that might just mean sharing the gospel with your neighbor or inviting someone over for dinner. But do share the gospel. I mentioned at the beginning of the message that very familiar scene of missing the opportunity to share the gospel with a person. But God is gracious, and he's the God of second chances and further opportunities. And I'm confident that we serve a God who by his spirit and his word can help you to share the gospel when you face that situation again. Now please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are recipients of your mercy. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, and you had mercy upon us. You had grace upon us. You were gracious to us. So Lord, let us now Show this mercy. Be, be vessels of this mercy to others. Give us courage where there's fear. And allow us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those in our community. Save people, Lord. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.